0: Good afternoon everyone. We are together again for our Erev Shabbat Friday afternoon class with Rabbi Akiva Zweig, Rosh Yeshiva at the Talmudic University of Florida, and the spiritual guide of the Emisphere program. Please be sure to reach out and find out about the good work that are done by both, the good work that is done by both. Uh, today, the rabbi will be speaking about Parsha Mishpatim, and especially uh, it's a special day because it's also a new month, Rosh Hodesh Adar the first. We would like to thank Henry and Lisa Manusheri for sponsoring this Parsha Shir on a regular basis, and we would also like to to thank. Alex, and Daniel Galski for their monthly sponsorship for this first month of ADAR. They are doing it in the memory of beloved grandparents, Abraham, Bela, Guillermo, and Dora, and also in loving memory of Uncle Alberto Galski. May their memory be a blessing and a shamot Havanalia for this uh, special sponsorship of our program. Today on Parsha's Mishpatim the Mishpatim, the rabbi will cover the following topics. Does the Torah advocate slavery? As well as what's so special about a door? Intriguing. Uh, for those of you who want to listen to the shir again or share it with a friend, a recording will be posted afterwards and it's also available by podcast. Again, thanks to all of you for attending. And without further ado, Rabbi Akiva Zwai. Good afternoon,
1: everyone. Hopefully, everyone can hear me okay. A good of Shabbos. As Aaron Yehuda mentioned, we are discussing Parshas Mishpatim, and Parshas Mishpatim is one of those parshios that is kind of endless with the various topics as well as the deep explanations given to these topics in the Talmud. So it's a really basically impossible Parsha to encapsulate. So instead of trying to tackle a lot of different topics in the Parsha, we will just begin with the first section of the Parsha, where the Torah talks about the concept of a Jewish slave and the treatment of the Jewish slave. Now, right off the bat, the question that is rather apparent is that the word Mishpatim, which is the name of the Parsha means laws, Generally speaking, we understand that this reference to laws refers to the laws of social justice, and it's pretty fascinating that in opening the laws of social justice, the Torah doesn't begin with the more simple laws, such as what happens if a person steals, what happens if a person damages, uh, what's the law of either lending money or watching somebody else's object. Instead, the Torah talks about when you shall acquire for yourself a Jewish slave, You should know that after six years of servitude, he should go free and various other laws. But one of the overarching laws is that if after six years, the slave says, I love my master and my wife and my children, which refers to a wife that he obtained during his servitude as a Jewish slave, and it's referring to children who were birthed to him while he was a slave. He says, I don't want to leave this wife and these children. I want to stay a slave for a longer period. The Torah says that his master takes him El Elohim, which in this context refers to the original court that was responsible for selling this slave. The master takes the slave to that court of judges. And they are the ones that sold him originally. And in addition to that, the master takes him to the door, the doorpost, the door, which we'll talk a little bit more in a moment. And the master will pierce the ear of this Jewish slave. And then he indeed becomes his servant until the Jubilee year. Everybody hear me okay? Great. So like I mentioned, at the outset, we need to understand why in the world would the Torah begin the laws of social justice, which immediately follows the higher Sinai experience with the law of a Jewish slave, a Jew who became a slave? First of all, we hope that that would be exceedingly rare. Second of all, it doesn't seem to serve as a chassis, as some sort of a base foundation of understanding the laws of social justice. And one would assume that a more appropriate introduction to the laws of social justice, like I mentioned a moment ago, would either be Stealing or damages, or maybe just the general law that two litigants need to take their dispute to a court, that would seem to be much more along the lines of an introductory paragraph, not the law of what happens with a Jewish owned slave. And in particular, when that Jewish owned slave wishes to stay more than the initial six years, that he is actually a slave by having this process happen where the master takes him to the court, takes him to the door, pierces his ear, and then he becomes a slave until the Jubilee year. Now, in case anybody is wondering, uh, the Jubilee year is not a set amount of time after the piercing happens. There's a calendar that tracks seven years of, 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 I'm sorry, seven cycles of seven years. And when those seven cycles of seven years are completed, that's the Jubilee year. It only applies when the Jews as a nation are living um, in the majority in the land of Israel. So it could happen really that this Jewish slave is bought in the first year, the first cycle of the first of the seven cycles, right, the first year of the first cycle, and he can end up being a slave for 49 years. That would be the maximum. Uh, the minimum uh, would be, uh, in addition to the six years that he worked, one more year when the Jubilee year comes. That would sort of be the minimum, although in truth, if the Jubilee year came before the six years, uh, then he would go free as well. So it's a little bit complex. Point is, is that there's a pretty broad range and the Torah is really emphasizing this as the introduction to the laws of Mishpatim and that requires some explanation. In addition to that, we have uh, a law over here that the piercing of, this, of the ear of this slave is a prerequisite to the slave being allowed to work more than the six years. That means that if this Jewish slave wants to stay in slavery, he can't just say, listen, keep me on as a slave and everything just stays the same. No, the master must take him to the court that sold him, to the door, pierce his ear in the door, and then he can stay as a slave for more years. And the obvious question is why is that ritual Necessary. Obviously, the main point would seem to be that he's not going free. Okay, so the Torah is basically saying that if the slave wants, he can continue on as a slave. Now, of course, the related question is why would anybody want to continue on as a slave, right? So we have to talk in a moment about what is the background of how a person becomes a slave, which is going to lead to another interesting question. And we will uh, hold off on that question for a moment, and then just mention the question of the door. And the question of the door is, why is it important to pierce the ear of the slave and drill it into a door? In other words, what the Torah is very clearly telling us is that it's not enough to pierce the ear of the slave. The piercing needs to pierce through his ear and into a door. Talk about bizarre. And it's really bizarre. It's like, you know, can you imagine if I told you, you need to pierce his ear into an S-rogue. What does one thing have to do with the other? You're piercing his ear. So we understand in general, piercing his ear might be a sign of ownership. And uh, the rabbis also point out that piercing the ear is a way of pointing out that the ear of the slave that heard not to be a slave, because the Jewish people are supposed to be directly slaves to Hashem, that ear is getting pierced. Okay, so we understand the ear, but what's about a door? That just seems completely bizarre. Yes, the rabbis talk about it a little bit. We'll get to that in our explanation. But, uh, you know, in brief, the rabbis say, look, the door that stood in Egypt as a sign where the blood of the pastal lamb was sprinkled Right, that door is also a sign that the Jewish people are supposed to be servants to Hashem and not servants to other people. So there's something to that, but you know it's kind of a, a loose association. So I'd like to suggest that there might be something even before we get to that reminder of the Egypt experience, something else about a door. Okay. Now, lastly, uh, for our questions, the opening sentence in the Torah says. And these are the laws that you should put in front of them. The second sentence says, when you acquire a Jewish slave, he shall work for six years, and the seventh year he goes. Free. Right? These are the laws that you should put in front of them, boom, right to the slave. Now, what's really amazing is that the Torah doesn't tell you how does it happen that a Jewish person becomes a slave. You know, most of us are familiar with slavery, where powerful people, Kidnapped other people, either from other countries or other nations, and then enslaved them. You know, they basically forcibly coerced them by first taking them and then putting them into servitude and creating all kinds of systems that uh, they would suffer if they ran away, et cetera. And that's how slavery happens. But over here, the Torah doesn't even tell you the background initially. Now, from other places in the Torah, we come to understand that the way that slavery happens is one of two ways. I'm talking specifically about Jewish slaves, right? Meaning a person who's a Jew becomes a slave happens in two ways. Number one way is the simpler way first, where a Jewish person owes money, cannot pay his debts. So he sells himself as a slave in order to pay off his debts. So a person selling himself. Now, that's not really what our section is dealing with, according to the rabbis, based on what I mentioned before, that this slave is supposed to be taken to the basting that sold him. And the case that I'm describing now is the person sells himself. So the case where a basting, where a court sells a Jew into slavery, is the following. a Jewish person stole money. The law of stealing money in Judaism, if it's thievery, which means sneakily, stealthily, stealing, the law is that the person has to pay back the principal plus one more amount equal to the principal. In Hebrew, we call that kafal. So a person has to pay double what he stole. And the law is that if a person cannot pay the extra amount, but he can, yes, pay the principal amount, he does not become sold into slavery. But if the person stole, we'll just use an example, $10,000 and he cannot pay the principal amount, he has $2,000 and does not have 10000 then the base in the court sells him into slavery. So my question is just very simple that there is no background here in the Torah about how this person became a slave. It says, these are the laws that you should put in front of them. When you buy a slave, he should be a slave for six years. If he wants to, he can stay longer. Why does the Torah not give us the context? Give us the background. I know nowadays, you know, talking about the context is kind of like a a taboo subject for us. But uh, the truth is that sometimes we need the context and things do depend on the context sometimes, right? So knowing how a slave becomes a slave does depend on the context. So why does the Torah not give us that context? That's the question with which we will begin our answer. Why is it unimportant to discuss how the slave became a slave? if we're talking about the laws of a Jewish slave? My answer is very simple. What the Torah is here focused on in the laws of social justice is the responsibility of one Jew to another. And unfortunately, most Jews, most of us today, even us religious Jews have fallen into the secular false notion that if it doesn't affect me, it's not my problem. If I didn't cause it, it's not my problem. And that's not how Jews are meant to view one another. If a problem is happening to a Jew, it is my problem, whether it's my next door neighbor or whether it's in a different country. If it's happening to a Jew, that is my problem. It is my responsibility. And the Torah is telling us that the basis of the laws of all social justice laws as pertains to Jew, to fellow Jew is the understanding that my goal as a Jew is to help every single Jew achieve his purpose as a Jewish person. That's my responsibility. Some people call that, Yisrael, every Jew is a guarantor for one another. But I'm talking about the more practical understanding, not just a throwaway line. It's not just that we have theoretical responsibility. If my fellow Jew is suffering, that's something that I have to pay attention to. Of course, a classic example in the Torah is Moshe Rabbeinu becoming the leader of the Jewish people starts with Moshe as an Egyptian prince being concerned with what's happening to his fellow brethren Jews that are slaves. That's actually the opening story of Moshe becoming a leader of the Jewish people. He looks at the pain and suffering of his Jewish brethren, even though he's actually living in an ivory tower of Egyptian royalty and completely protected by the most powerful people in the land. Yeah, but what difference does that make? Something's happening. There's a problem. My fellow Jew is suffering or being mistreated. That's a problem. So what the Torah tells us even more integrally than the fact that I have responsible responsibility to the pain and suffering of my fellow Jew, I have responsibility for the self-inflicted pain and suffering of my fellow Jew. That's something most of us don't wanna hear. This Jew, he stole money, or he went into major debt for whatever reason, sold himself into slavery. Nobody did that to him in theory, right? In theory, in many cases, at least if not most cases, a person did that to themselves. They chose to live an irresponsible life. They chose uh, not to learn a profession. They chose to take the easy way out and steal from other people. They chose maybe to, you know, um, get into major debt without working to pay it off in a responsible fashion. Whatever the situation is, seemingly in most of those cases, we're going to be talking about a Jew that made his own bed of slavery. Says the Torah, you, fellow Jew, have a responsibility to look at that situation and see if you can get involved and begin to take responsibility for that fellow Jew and buy him. Now you're going to tell me, you know, I'm dressing it up, right? Like who wouldn't want to have a nice Jewish slave? You know, we can't get good help nowadays. I want a slave who understands when I tell him something, right? So what what would be better than a Jewish slave? Because at least maybe there's some modicum of intelligence, right? But the rabbis tell us that when it comes to a Jewish slave, a person who acquires a Jewish slave is like he acquires a master for himself. Anybody of you uh, ever, ever do business with a Jew recently? Not so easy. You know, Jews have opinions. They have ideas. They think, why are you doing it this way? Should you do it the other way? You know, why would I do that? I know you told me to do that, but it doesn't really make sense. Blah, 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 blah. Right? But more than that, the rabbis tell us that the actual responsibility of the master who is Jewish, who owns a fellow Jew, is that if he has only one pillow, he has to give it to a Jewish slave. If he has only one nice pillow, cut of meat for a meal, he has to give it to the Jewish slave. If he has only one bed and the other option is a floor, he has to give the bed to his fellow Jew. So what are the rabbis really telling you about buying a Jewish slave? The goal is not that you should have an indentured servant. The goal is that you should empower your fellow Jew to feel better about himself, give him money or the court or whomever money that he needs in order to pay off his debt and his you know, his obligation, and then try to treat him like a mensch. And hopefully in the process, he will learn his own dignity and self-respect. You know, one of, one, of, uh, one of the high school students asked me just yesterday, I was doing a philosophical discussion with the 12th grade, and one of the students says, you know, when is a person ready to get married? So I said, um, you know, when does a person want to pay all his own bills? So he says to me, why should I want to pay all my own bills?
0: <laughs>
1: I said, I know it's really weird for me to tell you this, but you actually feel better about yourself as a person when you're not living off of mommy and daddy or grandparents or society. You actually feel better about yourself as a person. So he says, really? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah. The Talmud actually says that a person would rather one portion of his own earnings than nine... Portions nine times the amount of somebody else's money now that sounds really weird in today's society i mean after all what is welfare if not that right like of course i want other people's money more of the other person's money the better Uh, one person once told me that for him borrowing money from a bank is like candy i love to borrow money it's not my money i love it I, i get somebody else's money it's delicious right that's not a healthy mindset That's how people get into a lot of financial trouble. So what the Torah is telling us is that when we take responsibility for our fellow Jew to help him pay off his obligations, and then on top of that, as a servant, we have to treat him with the best that we have. And if we have only one good thing, we have to give it to him. And then on top of that, we have the responsibility to try to help him earn his own self-respect and dignity. And really, we shouldn't Keep him for more than six years. The Torah is telling us that is the foundation of the laws of social justice. Social justice laws are not only what's the penalty if I hurt someone, what's the cost of damaging, and what's considered a damage, and what's considered, you know, impeding on somebody else's rights. The Torah is telling us it starts with the opposite perspective. I have to be making sure that people who are suffering and not earning their own place in society that I help rehabilitate them so that they become a responsible citizen to society. That's really the laws of social justice. That's the true rights of a Jewish citizen. The true rights of a Jewish citizen is where every other Jew is working hard to make sure that he is capable of being a self-responsible citizen. And therefore, really, I shouldn't keep him for more than six years. And not only that, if the slave says, no, I want to stay a slave, you know, I like the life of irresponsibility, where I don't have to pay my own bills, where the master provides the food. Okay, so I have to work. And by the way, you know, I still got the best cl- of meat. I still got the pillow. I still got the the, the bed. You know, I kind of like that life. Some people call that living at home. Right? The Torah is telling us, you got to give this slave the message That's that's not freedom. Freedom is not being taken care of other people, being taken care of by other people. Freedom is where you live a life, where you build your own home, your own family, where the children are your children and not your master's children, where the wife stays your wife, doesn't stay back after you finish the job, which is what happens with the Jewish slave, the wife and the children that he obtains in slavery, he ultimately leaves them behind. They remain as slaves of the master. That's not a life. A life is building your own home and your own family. And the goal is to help every Jew to wanna do that and rehabilitate him to the point where he gets to do that. And so therefore what happens after six years, if the slave says, I wanna stay a slave, we say, wait a second, buddy." First of all, we're gonna pierce your ear. Piercing your ear is a way of showing slave that he's he's going to be permanently changed by making such a drastic decision where instead of choosing to go free and live his own life where he can be self-responsible and build his own family with his own wife and children, he chooses instead to stay as a slave. We say you're permanently altering yourself just like a piercing does. But more importantly, as the rabbis point out, the ear that heard on Mount Sinai that God wants the Jewish people to be directly serving him and not serving other people as their purpose in life, that ear is paying the price of a Jewish person serving to stay as a servant of other people. That's number one. But number two is the door. The door represents the home, but it doesn't only represent a a house A door represents an ingress and an egress. There's a balance in every person's life between what happens at home and what happens at the outside world. And the corridor and the portal between what happens at home and in the outside world is the door. The door represents a person's ability to be involved in the community, the world at large, But also to then go home, find himself and fortify himself and strengthen himself to be able to be the truly developed person that is able to interact with the world outside and go back and forth in a responsible way. Meaning that a person from the strength of the home has to build themselves so that they don't become completely subsumed by the outside world so that instead they can have a proper influence on the outside world, the door is a necessary component that allows a person to experience both worlds in the appropriate balance, right? Sometimes the door opens and the person passes through. Sometimes it closes and things are shut out. Either the home is left behind or the outside world is left behind. That's the concept of a door. One of the hardest things in freedom is to achieve that balance. A lot of people's approaches just shut me in my house. Other people's approaches, no, I completely embrace the outside world. I don't have a high regard and concern for either my family or for my internal self, my own development. And the balance is critical because true freedom, which is really the goal of the opening parsha of the opening paragraph, and then an insight into the overall parsha is that true freedom is to be able to be a free person that can responsibly interact with other people. Person has to be capable of doing both. And so the ultimate goal is to be able, the ultimate goal is to be able to experience uh, both worlds in a balanced way. And so therefore the Torah emphasizes very strongly that the slave is taken and his ear is pierced in the door. By the way, we hold, that the piercing has to be specifically into the door, not into the door post. Even though the Torah sounds like it could be either the door or the door post, it actually has to be the door. The rabbis tell us that Rashi brings that. And what I'm saying is because the door represents something that opens and closes, and the idea of the opening and closing is that in order to be a truly healthy, responsible person, a person needs to learn that balance between their own privacy their own self-development and introspection and things that happen in home and interacting appropriately with the outside world. And so therefore I think that it's very important that the Torah does start with the laws of acquiring a slave and it doesn't matter how this slave ended up in the situation of becoming a slave. The ultimate thing that matters is that we help this person get out of the slavery by demonstrating to him what it's like to actually be owned by someone where he has to follow somebody else's instructions for work, where even if he gets married and has children in that context, those children are not ever going to truly be permanently his family. And hopefully he will grow to not wanting to be the slave. If he doesn't grow to that understanding in the first six years, then we could and usually probably do keep him on as a slave because he wants to stay on as a slave, but even then, by the way, when the Jubilee year comes, he has to be emancipated. At that point, it's no longer acceptable because long-term slavery for a Jew is a no-no. Hashem wants every Jew to work directly as a servant to him and not to be responsible first, so to speak, to other people and other things, Really, a Jew's first responsibility is supposed to be to Hashem. So for me, and hopefully for a, um, you know, a modern day application, you know, what I take out of this is that we have to be very careful the things that we attach ourselves to and that we become indentured servants of. Like a very simple question we need to ask ourselves is, are we really in our lives making our service to Hashem the priority? Or are we making service to family members, whether it's a spouse or children, our community, you know, or the image that we want to project to the world? You know, is that what we're really serving? We want people to see us a certain way. And so we put all of our efforts into making sure that we're living up to that image, or are we really instead saying, no, what I really want to think about is what's my service to Hashem? What's the proper balance between building myself, and my family, interacting with the outside world in a way that serves Hashem, which, of course, also explains why we have the Shema on our doorpost, on the mezuzah, right? So the idea of mezuzah being a doorpost is that at that crossroads, when either we're going home or we're going out, we have to remember that our first service is to Hashem. We shouldn't get lost in what happens outside. We shouldn't get lost in what happens inside we have to first and foremost be a servant to Hashem. So I think that's a very important question for everyone to ask themselves is what is truly my most important service to God? Question, or I should say application number two is that when it comes to understanding the true basis of the laws of social justice among Jews, the law is secondary in terms of what happens if I hurt someone, what's my responsibility to pay? And the law is primary in terms of what's my responsibility to help a fellow Jew? Be free to serve Hashem. How can I ensure that my fellow Jew has both the mindset and the opportunity and the freedom to serve Hashem the way that he is meant to serve? And if part of the answer is I need to help rehabilitate him as in the case of the Jewish slave, yes. Of course, we hope that's an extreme example, but yes, then I do have a responsibility to do that. So when we think about applying this practically to our lives. Obviously, you know, hopefully we're thinking a lot about our children and how we empower them to be servants to Hashem, but we have a responsibility to the greater Jewish community as well. And you know me, one of the things that I think help all Jews become appropriately aware and engaged in the service to Hashem is affording them opportunities to study Torah. And so therefore, a very good way to help our fellow Jews live their true service to Hashem, is to offer them opportunities or facilitate possibilities for them to study Toga. Let's do questions or comments. I know there's a couple of things on the chat, but I'm happy for everyone else uh, first to chime in. Yeah.
0: Could you go a little bit further because uh, we're using the word slave, and and in Hebrew it's eved, and avoda is uh, means all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. Could, could could you maybe go a little further into the distinction because I think slavery is 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 a translation, but but as you indicated, it's not really the full flavor of what's intended.
1: Yes, thank you, thank you for uh, <clears throat> asking that question. Yes, I should have. That question. Uh, yes, so from- should have. So from. Uh, the so, Torah in other places, Torah like in Bihar, we, in other places we, like we get rid of the we, 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 we get rid of the we, we, From other places like in Parshish Bihar, it's very clear that uh, we are not allowed to abuse a servant, a slave. Uh, the word is Perech, which we talk about that the Egyptians did with the Jews, backbreaking labor that's not allowed when it comes to Jewish slaves for sure, but even non-Jewish slaves are not allowed to be abused. If you read the, the Rambam at the end of the laws of the Badin, uh, we're not even supposed to insult a non-Jewish slave. Now, I think for most people that just ain't slavery, right? Uh, it, it would be nice if we didn't um, insult our waiters, right? That, that would That would be really nice if we could even manage that. But in Judaism, Uh, the idea of of slavery is really about living the life where somebody else tells you the work that you're supposed to do, but it's not abusive, it's not oppressive, and it's certainly not shaming them or disgracing them, which is typically the way that uh, slavery uh, has been practiced uh, for, you know, many, many hundreds or thousands of years. So that's not uh, the Jewish version of slavery. Now, when it comes particularly to a Jewish slave, as we see, the Torah doesn't think, doesn't really want that a Jewish person should become a slave ever. But if they live a life of irresponsibility and they're in a position where that's the way to climb back into responsibility, so we're supposed to facilitate that happening uh, by acquiring them, paying off their debt, their obligation as a thief, et cetera, and then helping them learn the value of being free in the ways that we treat them, hopefully they they buy into. Anybody else
0: with a question? Are you are good with that? Yes, thank you. That's that's very helpful. The, 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 and, and prior, Shurim, you mentioned, and I, I might bring up that, uh, that Avoda is a service. The natural relationship of things is that there's always kind of a, an imbalance of power, whether it's an extreme case or whether it's a very moderate case, like in the case of an, an employer, employee, or even in partnership. So so this this sensitivity of people being responsible to each other in a variety of ways, uh, I think goes across a larger spectrum then you said, I think Bob Dylan had a song or something that says, you always got to serve somebody. And mm-hmm. it's a, just a question of of who are you going to serve? And in our case, coming out of Nitzrayim, we, we 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 didn't understand these types of things. And, and even today, although it's not quite in those terms, people talk about codependency. They talk about attachment disorders. There are all kinds of things that happen where I think the, the, the sensitivities that are raised here in this particular way, can be applied to, to, to more things if we don't think of it in, in the in, just in the context of, of, of slavery and, and this type of servitude.
1: Yeah, so in general, um, you're right. It's a great distinction that slavery versus service. Slavery tends to be something uh, looked at extremely negatively and service can be seen as something uh, very laudatory. Like we tell the typical soldier, we thank you for your service and um, You know, people hopefully are public servants or serving at the pleasure of a king or the president, et cetera. That's considered to be a lofty endeavor. And in truth, the person who, as we said, according to the rabbis, buys a Jewish slave, he's actually serving the purpose of helping that Jewish slave learn the value of true freedom.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Excellent point. Anyone else with a question or comment? One comment. Yes. Um, hey, Ari. Just the, how are you doing? Um, just the last point that you made, I thought was extremely fascinating. I think what it's what the 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 point that it to to not be able to prioritize your values correctly, and to and to take something that's supposed to be lower in the totem
0: pole, and put it up at the top. That is a lack of freedom. A true mm. freedom is being able to prioritize all the way to the, the, that which is supposed to be on the top and then everything else, which would even be serving your family. you always got to remember that serving your family is secondary to serving a Kaddish Baruch so everything. Mm.
1: It all goes back to the, the purpose of so everything, that, which is to serve the Abish there. Right. So what you're pointing out is that by truly being mindful and effective, in choosing your priorities correctly that shows that you're really free all
2: right i'm just trying to i'm just saying a different
1: way of what you said but yeah, yeah. no that's the good. same that's point good, good, good. yeah great thank you the Valdic. okay we good everyone for today I think we're good all right okay everybody should have a terrific shabbos and look forward god willing uh actually
2: we didn't uh, read posted, on,
1: i'm sorry Followed he didn't read chat. that. Chad. Okay. So, one second, I didn't see the... Oh, the top, one, see. Yes, for sure, I agree with you on Levin. He was definitely looking at Yaakov as his slave. No question about it. Um, and Yaakov even, you know, helps him into that notion by saying, Rebbeital said, Now, I'm not sure, Abito, what you mean that a, a slave who sold himself has a different law. Because Which if, law are you don't have to?
2: About? He doesn't have to go out of Yeovo. He sold himself; he has no yovel because he sold himself. Now he not the same thing as the bed that sold him. I, I have to.
1: I have to look that up. I look it up It's very do, okay. Did you? Is <laughs> it not a machlokes? Is not a machlokes? he you know, almost takes out everybody. Whoever said that only
2: takes out one type yeah, of slave.
1: I, I think it might be a machlokus, but, but I, I think it might be a machlokas
2: It is a machlokus. I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna look it up again with clarity. Okay. Okay. What Sounds what I want great. to ask to tell you yeah, is that by doing the right thing, that you're an ever Getting married, that's what God wants you to do. And whenever you do, so you really how can you? But that's the ever that you're doing. Whatever you do, the right mitzvah, you're an ever the whole time. Okay, I just want
1: to be clear. Are you talking about to your wife or to Akadosh Baruch
2: She's not. Uh, no, I'm saying that whatever you do is you're actually doing. <laughs> if you don't insult your friend, that means you're an Evet because Hashem said you shouldn't insult somebody.
1: And right. In other words, if you're, if you're bowing your will to what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, you're an Evet. You're
2: doing everything with the, the mitzvahs are. That's part of being an Evet. That's yeah. why I said, Abu dahayim, you're my Evet.
1: Yes. Thank you. I'm going to miss you this Shabbos.
2: Well, what shall I tell you? I've been, I've been busy with something, but we'll be in contact, Meir Toshan. Okay. Hope to see you soon.
1: Amen. Hope to see you soon. Okay, okay. good Shabbos, everyone. Shabbos. you're good. Shabbos,
0: Rabbi. Okay.
1: Oh, better than a- I'm waiting for my stress test, that I was
0: able to hear the whole sheer. <laughs> Uh, I see this. an upraised hand from from Joseph and maybe from I see. No. Oh sure. yes, please. Don't that me. was no, just a wave. This.
1: Sorry, my okay, apologies. This, no problem. The wave looks um, like an end. Doctor you. Finkelstein, you're you, you're good. You want to say something? No, I'm I taking it in really love awesome. what um okay uh somebody else said about about the like you know freedom is the same thing as kind of having your priority street. <laughs> right. It's a really yeah. really a really good point. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Shkayach, everyone. Have a great Shabbos.